Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, About the Fit, from The Intern. Work of I'm Paula Sizek, and I'm here today with my colleagues, Jane Garza, Dr. Kim Perkins. We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. And every month, we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and their organizations, what works, what doesn't. And then most importantly, we like to talk about the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. All right. So, Jane, tell us a little bit about the intern. Sure. So, 70-year-old Ben Whitaker applies to be a senior intern at e-commerce startup About the Fit, founded by a savvy but overworked Jules Austin. Though initially skeptical, Ben wins over Jules and the rest of the team, serving as a font of wisdom as Jules debates whether to replace herself as CEO. I wanted to, first of all, thank our listeners. This is not just a listener-requested episode. I had... Several people request this particular film, and I literally had a friend text me at 11 o'clock today being like, hey, I really think you should do The Intern. Whoa. So this is this is by listener request. So just a reminder, if you have a if you if you have a film or a TV show that you think we should address, um, drop us a line at heart at Nobel dot IO. Um, you can also find us on work of uh, sorry, workoffiction.fm, but get in touch. Uh, we we do listen to requests, and this is for you. So um, thank you very much for our listeners. All right, so I wanted to know what you guys thought. What was your reaction to the film? What did you think? I really, I actually really dug it. I thought it was going to be goofier, like people bumbling through having a senior intern and everyone making like I don't know, weird comments about that and not treating them very well and then learning to work with a senior intern. But it was less of that and more about just like generally building relationships, which I enjoyed. There's obviously a little bit of that, but I enjoyed it overall. It was more emotional than I expected. I actually kind of would recommend this movie. I I enjoyed the company that was portrayed in it, which isn't common for a lot of the movies we watch. (laughs) Yeah, too. I found it very well crafted. I felt like they did. They conveyed a lot within little touches and it was that was great. My head canon is that this is the sequel to Devil Wears Prada. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I nice. think that uh, it's actually Andy mm-hmm. and that she worked in journalism for a little bit. But when the recession hit, she returned to her, her first job of experience. And that's how she started this company, which is all about fashion and shopping and e-commerce. And she moved to Brooklyn because that was the thing what to, to do. do. Yeah. Um, right. and, and she's getting over her relationship with her also somewhat senior boss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and she still has really questionable taste in men. <laughs> so so yeah, in my in my headcanon, this is absolutely the sequel to Devil Wears Prada, which we've also talked about. So you can go take a look at that in our archives. 
Um, I also loved the portrayal of the workplace. So we, I don't know why, but we, we've seen a lot of films which were set in like the 90s, mm-hmm. which had like the endless cubicle farms and it's sort of gray and bland and it's got, you know, the big, you know, the, the giant uh, computers. I'm like, laptops? I'm like, no, that's not the right word. Um, desktops. <laughs> yes, yes, desktops. Giant beige Thank desktops. Thank you. I've heard of these things. Uh, and so this was a really interesting change in that it was... The modern workspace, right? So it was open plan mm-hmm. and everybody had, you know, flat screen Apple monitors. Bringing the dog to work. Yeah. Uh, the boss actually gets her from meeting to meeting by bicycle. <laughs> the, the space doesn't look that big. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's like a two second bike ride. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I feel like, you know, if you watch shows like Silicon Valley, there are modern offices portrayed in movies and TV, but often they're like over the top or not even over the top. They portray a real example of what's happening in a lot of Silicon offices where it's just like ping pong balls and kombucha on tap, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought this was like a good balance of it's modern, but it's not like they're playing with Nerf guns every hour. Right. Which is something we do <laughs> all the time. Oh, yeah. We, we shoot each other with Nerf guns. <laughs> All right, so there were there were several themes that we thought were really interesting in this film. We're going to talk a little bit today about, first of all, age in the workplace. It is, after all, the intern and, you know, the fact that it's Robert De Niro. The senior intern, yeah. yes. Uh, then I want to talk also a little bit about self-awareness and the founder's journey, right? Because as much as this is about the intern, it's about the intern's interaction with the founder of this company. Uh, and then also really wanted to talk about work-life balance and scale, because this is a startup story. Again, as much as it is any one employee, it's about how this organization has expanded and grown and how you manage those changes that the company is going to go through. So we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and dive right in with the first, which is, of course, um, age in the workplace. So the very first thing that I wanted to do is to absolutely destroy this myth of like millennials and Gen Z in the workplace versus boomers in the workplace. Uh, Kim, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, let's just put a <laughs> knife in that one. Because, you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of research and a lot of it um, talking about how the generations are different. But a lot of that really can come down to a cohort effect. And it is true that once you are out of your 20s, you kind of forget what it's like to be 22 again. We, I have some... You know, as a person who's well into the Gen X category, let me just put it that way, yeah. not copying to anything specifically. But we, um, you know, I, I sometimes find myself giggling when people, I hear people who are like 28 years old say, oh, these 22 year olds these days are just like, what's with them? <laughs> um, because the fact is that a lot of it is just a, is what we would call a cohort effect, which means that this is what 22 year olds are like until they learn more things. And they're like 28 year olds mm-hmm. and then 28 year olds kind of look like that to 35 year olds and on and on. So it's not really about the generations being that different. Everybody wants the same things out of work. Yeah, it's more like looking back on life stages yeah life stages yeah Yeah. so kim as a gen xer and yes i'm going to do this the entire podcast as a gen xer until it gets old um (laughs) as a gen xer so um you have the uh fortune of working (laughs) well i didn't die yet and i work and i work with a bunch of millennials yes that's that's i wasn't i wasn't (laughs) suggesting death but thanks for jumping there. Sure, of course. Ugh, typical Gen Xer, I always know, so, so sardonic. Ugh. <laughs> uh, 
So I'm I'm actually really curious. You have to put up with a bunch of millennials, essentially millennials, shakes fist. <laughs> um, and so I'm I'm just curious as to like what your experience is in working with a different generation. So in in the film, um, of course, uh, Ben is not a Gen Xer. He's he's more of a boomer, but he's he's working with millennials, and so there's it's probably. Yeah, so like an older boomer even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's like a little bit of uh, like, you know, culture shock, culture differences. Mm. Obviously, it's not that extreme. Or maybe it is. Tell me tell me what your experience has been. <laughs> well, the thing that I, I kind of liked in the movie that I really noticed was that he keeps his mouth shut about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really say, oh, my God, what's a mouse? You know, the way like he runs into an older uh, a person of his generation who was who was, he was looking at the ads with. Um they were looking for the senior intern ads and and she was like i don't even know what all that alphabet soup means and he kind of plays it cool yeah so you don't assume that he does but he doesn't also just tell you that he doesn't and that takes a lot of self-restraint because it is um what the thing that i really noticed okay so here's the upside i i i'm actually a huge fan of millennials and i need to say this up front because i find that millennials are very defensive <laughs> about this <laughs> We, and we understandable. Get a lot. Yeah, you <laughs> get a lot. A lot of but I'm a big fan, and I feel like um, the way the culture at work has changed in this generation is very positive on the whole. And um, something, if anything, I feel envy that I didn't get to start out. I know the economy sucks when you're 22 and all that, but that some of the things that I had to learn and then unlearn instead of just going straight forward the way pe- younger people have. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, as an older person, I get. Um, a lot of the, I'm not just not as fast at the tech as other people um, who are younger because I am not a digital native, and so it always it's always a second language for me, and that's annoying. And I have a lot of stereotype threat about it, which is like um, stereotype threat is the idea that if you you're worried about being lumped in with the groups in a stereotypical way, so I don't want like if I. And the last person off the conference call, I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> They're going to think I don't know how to get off the conference call, which may be true. So um, That's definitely not something I yeah. think. <laughs> I actually but, feel like yeah. you're more tech savvy than you think you are. Because I, I think you are more like acronym friendly than I am. You've like told me about internet memes that I didn't know about, like Bodie McBoatface. You, know? you didn't know about Bodie McBoatface? I did it. I did it. I feel I don't feel ashamed. I feel proud now. But I, I do feel like it's important to stay um, up on things and not just I, I really hate it when people my age get into a rut with um, thinking that they sort of got frozen in 19 whatever year and that everything should look like that anymore. That's the worst. So I have chosen my older friends also It'd be people who are very interested in what's going on now and not just holding mm-hmm. to a standard that is like the one standard from when they were growing up. What do you think about compromise? So to your point, Ben doesn't, you know, he's not complaining about the millennials. But at the same time, he also maintains his own sense of style, right? Yeah. Everybody else is more business casual. He still wears a suit every day. He carries a briefcase. So what do do you recommend to the leaders that you coach or, or to people in your cohort? What's the right balance? The right balance. I think what he does is great because he maintains his own sense of identity. He doesn't mm-hmm. go trying to look to dress like the the normally aged interns, <laughs> and he could. Some people would go try to go that route, you know. Um, so he maintains his own sense of identity. I think that's what people also do in you know when they're in those sort of stereotype threat um, environments. 
you know, Jane and I were talking about this yesterday with how sometimes when uh, women are in very male environments, they'll dress very, very feminine to be kind of like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is me and just deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that um, so that kind of reactance works out really well. And as far as like how well, I have ad actually advised a lot of leaders my age on how to deal with millennials. And mostly I try to get them to get over themselves and realize that, I mean, I, you know, honestly, which is like, why are you, I know that part of what we learned was that you have to adhere to the standards of the older people, but if they're not better, why would you want to do that? So I ask people to keep an open mind and re-examine what they're doing rather than um, just assume that how, because a lot of the questions that they want to know is how can I get my 22 year olds to act more like I, I want, I acted when I was 22. We do see that a lot in clients where people think I went through it, right? There's almost like a hazing oh, mm -hmm. mindset to it. Like, well, I suffered so through it, much. so they should too, right? Why no, are they not. complaining about it? So like, how have you helped people reframe that conversation? The, the big reframe for me and I, I, I find is that there's a certain sense of envy there. So there... You know, I'm thinking about some people I was were talking to who were in charge of like quality in a medical school. And they said, these guys don't want to work 60 hours a week. They should understand that's what the job is. And I'm like, that's not what the job is anymore. You know, they're, yes, you want them to be able to make really good decisions when they're very tired, the medical residents. Yeah. But this is no longer a job that is like a vocation where you serve the community because of the nature of healthcare has changed. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to keep changing. And if you are, you know, so you're going to feel kind of butthurt that you had to do all these things that these people don't have to do. And it's going to feel like they're getting off easy because you learned great lessons from having to do things in this certain way. But that doesn't mean those are the only way to get those lessons can get those lessons in other ways. So instead of say years of experience in because you you know, I'm thinking about some people I've talked to who would insist that people needed to pay their dues, which is something that, you know, Gen Xers complain that millennials don't want to do. And I'm like, look, this is we're now living in a world where you don't really have to pay your dues because the way that it, that things are done is a moving target. And you have to be very nimble and invent new ways of getting things done, not learn the one true way. Those are two different things. If it makes your Gen X colleagues feel any better, uh, we are a trillion dollars in student debt and we can't buy houses. So like it kind of <laughs> it kind of evens out. But yeah, sure. Let's stay a little bit later at the office. No, so Kim, I think you bring up a really great point in that it's like, well, these twenty two year olds aren't doing what I want them to do. And so, Jane, as a millennial, <laughs> I'm really curious as to how you either work with people in different generations, how you position yourself as an expert, or if you will um, manage up, but how do you establish that credibility when, you know, you're just a kid, quote unquote? <laughs> um, well, I, I think, like, I think valuing everyone's input is like step number one. I think everyone's already coming from their own perspective and worried that I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too female, etc to have my opinion be valued. And I think in order for people to respect you, you have to like respect their input and where they're coming from and their experience. So that would be number one for me in terms of collaborating with various generations. What about you? I'm curious about what your answer would be for that too. Oh, I just know that I'm right. <laughs> so I go in. <laughs> that does the trick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I don't know. I just assume that I have credibility. We're going to have to edit this. <laughs> uh, I don't know. This is some good stuff guard. over here, right? <laughs> I'm, a- I'm asking the questions here. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think Jane has a point that is ev- most people can make a case that they're too fill in the blank mm-hmm. in one way or another. You know, I'm sitting here opposite. I'm the oldest person in the company. You're sitting opposite the youngest person in the company. Mm-hmm. And we could both be like, oh, I'm to whatever mm-hmm. for doing this. And But here we all are doing it. And so I guess it's fine. And and I think so yeah. to bring it back around, I think that's what Paula's answer to this is. I just decide that it's fine. And so it is. And yeah, there's an yeah. element of that, that that actually really works. I think so, too. I think that's like partly there's always going to be a bit of imposter syndrome especially when you're you're like you said potentially leading a team that is older than you that's obviously potentially will play a part right but I think part of it is just saying I'm in this position for a reason and faking it until you feel it I actually think people have a really this is going to be a humble brag I think people have a really hard time figuring out what age I am I think hmm. I, I think I probably look younger than I am, but I probably act older than I am. So people honestly I, I don't will, know. I will admit that I talked to you on the phone, but when I was interviewing at Nobel, and I, having talked to you on the phone, I thought you were about ten years older than you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you do act more mature than you're eight, than which you're. is something my parents have never said. <laughs> It's fine. Take that, Mom but do you, But does that feel inauthentic to you? Do you feel like you're acting that way on purpose, or is that just rolling out no, of you the way it is? That's just that's just that's me mm-hmm. doing my thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I have definitely hung out with college students who are like, so like, when she graduate? And I'm like, a while ago. Yeah, because you have that awesome skin. Yeah, <laughs> moisturizer, guys. Water is the essence of wetness. Um, so so yeah, like. I guess my answer is admit to nothing, keep people guessing. That would be my suggestion. <laughs> Remain a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's my, t- that's my takeaway. Uh, the only other thing I'll add is that people of, you know, in any version of diversity, people approach problems in different ways. And I think like trusting people's process and focusing on the result over the process would be the other way to like align rather than saying you have to do it the way that I would do it. Um, whether it's like a very tech savvy version or a not tech savvy version or some completely other version of it, I think allowing people to find their own process of doing the thing and worrying mo- more about the result. Yeah. Talking of diversity, right, and including people from all different kinds, um, what are the benefits of a multi general workplace? Like, why should we even bother? I think in the film they have this interesting there's actually like a very first section which is all exposition it's like well we're doing this because of this x y and z and it's important to have a multi-general workplace and studies have shown and you're like is this is this real do i really okay um and so i'm i'm just curious from a professional standpoint like why why would we encourage a multi-general workplace you know i haven't seen any studies showing that a multi-general generational workplace is somehow better it's more just like a fact of life because people don't just you know uh go to the grave when they're 45 they keep wanting to work mm-hmm. god damn it oh i know hmm. just okay. so you know i know right and people who are coming out of college they want jobs and so it, it's you know it's very easy it, it's hard not to have a multi-generational workplace um if you have people of any length of time at your company if you are in a startup you may have to go hire some or be open to them um and there's a lot of ageism i mean especially in tech fields i have heard 
um, I don't have the statistics at hand right now, but there's just it's it's much harder for a person mm -hmm. over 50 to find a, um, a full time, well paid job. And a lot of it is not useful. And so some of the ways that people get screened out of that are by like, well, we're looking for somebody with like between five and 10 years of experience and mm -hmm. not 30. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of a covert ageism right there. And on the flip side of that, of course, you have people who are looking for, quote unquote, entry level, but already have two to three years of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not, again, I think what we're talking about is that ageism goes both directions. So they, I think there's a lot of young people who feel that they're closed out. And there's definitely a lot of old people who feel that they're closed out. And it's it's not a one directional power base in that in that way. Yeah, I think this goes back to what we often talk about with the companies that we work with, which is don't focus too hard about um, adjusting for a specific generation or a specific group of people like millennials, say, right? Focus more on being able to evolve in general, because no matter what, you're going to be continually evolving for whoever is coming into your door. Yeah, absolutely. Because now we have Generation Z to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. and, but it's not really a deal with. It's there's always going to be twenty two year olds, and there's always going to be fifty five year olds. They actually show that in the film. At one point, they uh, a designer is asking the founder Jules to take a look at the website, and one of them is like, "Well, like let's pretend we're thirty five. And so she like stands really far away and she squints and she's like, "No, I I can't read it. We need to make it bigger." <laughs> And I was like, thirty-five, really? I mean, <laughs> but it's true. There's a lot of things like, um, you know, I like to go to a lot of pretty, you know, hipster restaurants, and half the time I have a really hard time reading the menu because it's dark and the print is tiny, and I'm thinking there's a whole big piece of paper here. Why can't we just make it a little bigger? And a few years ago, I, that was not on my radar at all. That was not a thing. So. Yeah. yeah. So designing for the customer. Yeah. Designing for the customer is, is really critical. Jane, as a millennial HR person, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just wondering, what do you have to be thinking about in terms of like discrimination from like a legal or an HR perspective? Like what shouldn't you ask or how can you create mm -hmm. an environment which is uh, more welcoming to people of all ages? Yeah. Um. So the U.S. itself has a regulation around age discrimination that actually starts at age 40. So it's it's not it's not like just senior interns. We have a seven year old intern in this movie, but it's actually at age 40. Um, and that applies to like the basic buckets are you're hiring, you're promoting or you're firing or demoting. And in any of those, if you're discriminating um, on anyone above age 40, that's where you get into trouble. Um, and that basically means like saying we really want a fresh, young perspective in our new marketing campaigns mm -hmm. and only hiring people who can deliver that and assuming that the people that can deliver that are of a certain age. Um, or if two people are a pro promotion, really thinking about like, are you not choosing the person who's over 40 because their skill set do doesn't match or because you don't think that they're, you know, youthful enough? Really thinking critically about why are you making the decisions that you're making? Hip and with it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, yeah, people want young people because they are energetic, you know, hungry, will work mm -hmm. long hours. Cheaper. Cheaper. And also, mm -hmm. you know, more, quote unquote, in touch with what's with pop culture. 
Um, and older people are, you know, stereotyped to be more set in their ways, less interested in devoting a lot of energy to the job. And these things are not real. Uh, you know, in the research I've seen, this is not necessarily borne out. People are on their individual journeys. They're, you can, uh, and not everybody just checks out when at a quote unquote retirement yeah. age. In fact, more and more people are doing things like, um, not so much senior interns, I have yet to really see that, <laughs> but more that people are having what they call third act careers. Yeah. So that once they that they retire and retire early if they can from a job that is the bill paying job to go um, do more nonprofit stuff, more art stuff. So people really want to give back. I mean, we think about in leadership, generativity is a stage of leadership when it's not about your own progress. It's about giving back to um, the company or the community or society as a whole. And that's definitely where we see uh, Robert De Niro's character in this. And so that there's a lot to offer. Yeah. Yeah. So the key thing, as with a lot of diversity, is check to see if you're making an assumption on that person's ability to deliver on the job based on the way they look, the age they are, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Great. It's hard not to, but you, if you check yourself, you can do better. Yeah. So you're saying check yourself before you wreck yourself? Is that the fair to say, Paula? This is. I'm just infusing a little bit of millennial. That's millennial humor. Yes. Yes, it is humor. It was funny. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> so, Kim, just going back to a point you made about, you know, Ben Ben is on a journey. Uh, he's he's really had a 40-year career, essentially, at a yellow page factory, and now he's, <laughs> he's coming back for his second or third act. Mm -hmm. He's not the only character, though. The other character, of course, is his boss, mm -hmm. um, Jules, played by Anne Hathaway, and she's on a journey as well. She is a founder. Of, of this startup um, and you know they talk a little bit about the founder's story in the movie about how she started it at a kitchen table and she grew it to now 200 plus employees and so I wanted to turn it over to you guys to talk a little bit about what does that founder's journey look like in real life and where Jules is in this particular journey well one of the things you know we work with a lot of startups and around 200 people, between 150 and 200 is often where we come in because that's where things get a little hairy. I mean, we work with teams that are, you know, have been much smaller than that. But usually a startup will start with one person or a couple of people around a kitchen table in the garage. And they'll make decisions by saying, oh, like, if, like the three of us in this room, we'd say, hey, Paula, what do you think? Should we do this? Yeah, OK, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And it's very informal. And also, this is a time when everybody is kind of working their ass off to get to the uh, the next level. <clears throat> and then as thing, as it starts to grow and as the team grows and you start to need a lot more uh, structure and also the founders, um, most founders, you know, founders got a found. So they really like to, uh, they, they like that chaotic early stage area. And when things start to get too bureaucratic and there's too many rules, a lot of times they start to chafe at it. And also, a lot of times people do want say that that founding is great but it's time for you to go because it's not you don't want to ma manage a major organization you want to go have that new idea and noodle around with it in your garage so mm -hmm. you're probably you know in those situations the founder is not necessarily the person who can shepherd it through these next levels of uh, becoming a solid stable bureaucracy and having an ipo etc so a lot of times that's where and uh, uh, the founder will make an exit yeah. It's a totally different set of skills, too. Like, Jules is very hands-on. It's a bit, like, scrappy. 
Um, she's doing things. everything. She's doing Amazing. everything. And as you grow, you, as a founder, obviously can't do everything. You can't really know everyone in your company that's doing everything. And they list all the problems that they're having. They're very successful in terms of sales, but then they can barely support that with like their tech tools and their customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's being able to have the skill set to deal with that complexity and kind of elevate a company once it gets to that stage is the, the key. Um, I think there is actually a point in the movie where they they recognize, like you said, they're going through the list of problems and they're afraid of being overwhelmed, right? Too mm-hmm. successful for their own good where they, they can't deliver. And this is this is actually a problem that we see it's a, a common lot problem. with mm-hmm. the startups that we're working at. Look, it's a great problem to have, right? We're not we don't want to fault anybody for that. It's a good problem. But the fact of the matter is that as you add people, we like to say that, you know, organizations don't necessarily scale with with people unless you're un- intentional about it. Absolutely. Um, intentional about, about how you scale with people in terms of both your practices and your culture. Yeah. And the more you scale, the more that culture... So in the beginning days, like you said, we have three people in here. It's pretty easy to figure out the culture and the decision-making practices it's pretty implicit like we might just have it kind of in our heads but as we grow um making that more explicit so that when people walk in the door they understand the rules of how things get done around here is kind of the key and the less you do that or the less you intentionally do that the more you collect what we sometimes call like that debt the like culture debt where you haven't really taken the moment to design it and the bigger you grow the more complex and hairy that can get Absolutely. People often take kind of a, well, we'll work hard now and we'll fix it later kind of approach. And uh, maybe you'll fix it later and maybe you won't. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a lot harder to do than if you can be mindful about it as you go forward. Sure. I mean, we've talked about this at length. It's this idea that culture really can't wait, right? What you do at any given time is your culture. We have heard from startups who are like, well, we're, we're going to intentionally not have a culture. <laughs> And that's not quite it's not really how, how it works. works. <laughs> um, and there, there's there's Conway's law, which is of course says basically you ship whatever it's a it's a reflection of your culture and your structure. Yeah. yeah. So the messier the work is internally, the more that's going to reflect in the actual tech that you put out or the product that you put out too. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, what what do we recommend? Right. Um, what are the things that we suggest? to founders when they are rapidly scaling, when they are struggling with all of the complexities that come with a growing business? Mm. I think like number one, so because we've just been talking about culture a lot, I think I would say as a first small step is to really think about what are some of the basics, the pieces of your culture that you want to codify and hold on to. And they can be like three things, so not to get overly complicated. Sometimes we work with startups that have gone in completely the other direction and have done like the kitchen sink approach to culture, which means they have like every little thing you can think of. This is more of just thinking of what are those simple like three things we want to hold on to as we scale so that people at least have a direction of how we treat each other, how we make decisions, et cetera. So some, sometimes we find it's it's not just about empowerment because the people who are attracted to startup culture are, tend to be very get it done kind of people. And sometimes, you you know, if there's 10 problems and six people, then each person will come up with an independent solution to that problem. And now you've got a great deal of complexity. Which of these 60 solutions will be the one that wins out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem we see often with startups and as opposed to what we see with bureaucracies, which is that there's more of an element elephant in the room that nobody wants to deal with and so nobody feels empowered to deal to do with it you know so it's a different problem not better 
A lot of the startups that we work with, especially when they're in that transition phase, sometimes it's around 70 people, sometimes it's around the 200 mark, but they realize that they are no longer operating like a startup, right? They've, they've hit enough people where they aren't as agile and nimble and you can't have everybody making the decisions. And some startup founders will really rebel against that. They'll be like, no, we're going to hold on to what made us a startup, right? Mm. Um, and unfortunately, this often leads to chaos. You want to you want to have it be flat. You don't want to have a hierarchy, right? Like, no, everybody should still make decisions. But what we find is that whether you like it or not, hierarchies do start to form. There are going to be people who have expertise, who are natural leaders, who will come to the fore. And, and also people who have the purview of looking out over a whole section of something rather than who people who are attracted more to the doing of the work. I mean, it's the difference mm -hmm. between like being a strategist and a coder. Mm -hmm. So we talk about this in, in our change management, right? It's this idea that, yeah, you do have to get to a point where you let some things go, right? So it's really identifying what values, to your point, Jane, what values do you want to hold on to? What are What's your mission, right? What's what's your ultimate purpose, um, and what best serves that given your current conditions, right? You you don't and you shouldn't stay the same as you grow as an organization, and sometimes that's really hard, especially if you're a founder and you've been with it since the beginning. And especially when you're a founder, you probably like the chaos, and not everybody you work with will like the chaos particularly mm -hmm. anymore. A lot of times when you're scaling up, I'm thinking about it, this company in particular in this movie, but you know, when you're getting to 200 people, you're going to be bringing people in who are career fashion people who've been at in a lot of other positions, and they're going to have ways that they want to do their, set up their departments and do their jobs, and it's going to be contrary to your very fluid, scrappy way. Yeah. And you have to, and you may have to step aside and let them do it. Yeah. And often um, there ha there comes like a transition with talent too, where in the early days of a startup, people are coming in because they want to build the company. Like they're excited about building something up from the ground. But um, as you grow, people are coming in because they are thinking about their own career trajectory, basically. I want to work in fashion and I want to grow in my fashion career, let's say for this example rather than I specifically want to grow this company and really care about what happens here. Um, the other thing I'll add around like talent and hiring is that at this stage is people stop knowing each other's names. And so just really thinking about um, how you can continue to help people understand what teams exist, what new roles are popping up, what new responsibilities are around the company, because it's really hard to design work together or even collaborate together if you don't know who's across the hall. So what do you guys think? Should Jules step down and put in a founder? That's the, I would say that's the big conflict throughout the movie, right? It is, is Jules going to find a replacement for her so that she can have more work-life balance, that she can, she can step back, hand over the reins, give it to someone who, you know, quote unquote, knows better about, about these things, can install more process? Or is this her baby? As she even points out, she's like, well, nobody brought in, like nobody replaced Mark Zuckerberg, even though they br did bring in Sheryl Sandberg, who did institute some process, but whatever. Um, it's just a movie. <laughs> anyway, so what is, is there a right time to oust the founder or have them hand over the reins? Should they take over more of a founder role? What do you guys think? What have you seen? I think it depends on the founder. It's hard to tell with Jules because the way they portray her in the movie is like she can do everything really well, including helping the warehouse workers box up the clothes. 
and customer service and, you know, any other thing that you throw at her. So it's hard to tell, like, will she be good at this or not? But I think it depends on the founder and their skill set. And to your point earlier, Kim, do they want to be an inventor, creator, spinning up new things? Or are they interested in this other part of a company's life cycle where you're actually just like building out what happens next for it? Yeah, I'd say that's really definitely about about their preferences is is a really big deal because a lot of founders do chafe at having to have a board to report to and all of the things that are conventions of larger companies. Um, Mark Zuckerberg's kind of a, a, a rarity here. And I think that there were a lot of cases uh, earlier in the life of Facebook, there were a lot of situations where they were thinking internally, maybe this is not a great idea. Maybe we should get this guy out of here. And that's not to say mm -hmm. that this is, that, um, you know, I'm hedging my bets on whether continuing with the same founder at this stage of the company is real, was really the smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't yeah. know if it may depend on w at what mm -hmm. point in its company's trajectory you look at it. Yeah. But um, I, I'm in favor of the founders moving on. As I said, founders got to found and there will be other ideas that they will enjoy developing. Um, part of my uh, my dissertation was on, involved a concept about entrepreneurial passion. So and that was the idea that a found, that um, people who found companies have certain identities in that they're enthusiastic about. So it might be as an inventor of new ideas, and it might be as a developer of a thing um, to to make something happen in the world. And what, whichever these develop these identities that they have are the ones that they will keep pursuing over and over. And generally, if they wanted to be a bureaucrat, if they wanted to be a, the CEO of a major company, they probably would have gone in a more corporate path from the beginning and not been a founder. Mm. They were really the right fit for that a lot of the time. Yeah. So perhaps now, at this point in the film, is not the moment where Jules jumps, but maybe at some point there is there is a point where she realizes, like, hey, there's nothing... There's nothing new for me to reinvent here. It's time to do something new. Or she could take the path of becoming more corporate and a sellout. I mean, <laughs> it's not suit. It's not selling out. It's buying in. <laughs> what about the work-life balance, right? A, a large part of the reason that she's even considering stepping back, right, and, and bringing on a CEO because the life of a founder is so demanding. It's, mm -hmm. you know, Jane, as, as you pointed out, she can do everything. She is at the warehouse. She is... Answering customer service calls. Right. Uh, she's, she's the last one in the office answering emails. She's, she's checking her laptop at night. She's on the phone. She's in, she, like, she is always involved. So what advice do we typically give leaders when they are really struggling to carve out time to address their home life? Well, my thing, I'm look, looking at Jules, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be doing this. You have customer service people. You have warehouse people. You don't have to do everything yourself. And that's something that I think it's hard for, for all leaders to get to let go of, whether they're a founding type leader or whether they are just, a, you know, people who end up being leaders are often very uh, high performance people who are interested in everything and also people who think they can do it better than you and you have to delegate and that's the first line of leadership is that people and and so we I think we find ourselves wrestling with a lot of leaders to say look you have to yes it is, not, it is cool for you to know about this thing but if you are doing it then you are not leading it because leadership is getting work done through other people's efforts. So you can't be everywhere at once so why are you doing this stop doing this to yourself go to SoulCycle. <laughs> Yeah, totally. 
that's exactly what I was going to say. Like delegation is scaling. You, how can you possibly scale if you don't have someone else helping the customer service team up their game or helping the warehouse team change how they approach that? So then how do you stay in touch, right? Like that's that's what people always complain. Like, oh, you're a leader. Like you, you lose touch with your customers and you forget where you came from, right? So how do you then balance this need to delegate, which absolutely exists, with you know an equally compelling demand to stay aware of what's going on at the at the front lines well this is probably a very niche and specific example but i don't think you need to disconnect completely from your customers jeff bezos i think famously gets emails directly from his customers because he likes to hear stories around like what's happening with orders and he uses those as data points similar to like actual um numerical data they get but I think that would be one thing is like you don't completely have to take yourself out of the process, but out of the day to day and like the elevating of the process and training, et cetera, you shouldn't be the one doing that. And, uh, and it's hard because a lot of times what, you know, you, you want to do it. You know, we've worked with some leaders who come from a certain discipline within the business and then they ascend to, you know, a C-level position and suddenly they're responsible for the everything the the overall strategy but they have really like excellent excellent skills at executing on a much lower level and because these new jobs end up being so overwhelming and such new territory i mean that that phrase is true that what got you here won't get you there people Mm -hmm. always have to learn new skills at every letter every time they move up in leadership um and people want end up wanting to do the thing that they feel comfortable with you know, if they're a coder, they want to code. If they have, came up through finance, they want to have a look at the books. And you cannot do that when you're moving into those positions. So as a founder, of course, you were doing all of that at once. You were doing the books and you were you were putting the, the product in boxes and doing all of these things. And some of that is probably very gratifying because you know that you know how to do this. And you have to let it go anyway, even though it's so comfortable. Yeah. And part of that is, it's comfortable because you know how to do it, right? Whereas, Finally, it's like something you actually know how to do, yeah. <laughs> whereas a lot of time as a leader, you're facing things where you don't know, you haven't done it before. Exactly. There maybe isn't a great answer, right? And exactly. so, yeah, it's it's nice to do a thing where you're like, yes, this is the right answer. Absolutely. And I think that's a trap that all the leaders fall into, both founders and non-founders. Yeah. I wanted to actually talk a little bit more about leadership skills in terms of self-awareness. I think that both Ben and Jules actually have a really, really high level of self-awareness on display throughout the movie. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. First of all, of course, what is self-awareness and why do we care about it in terms of leadership? Well, self-awareness is is nothing less than the bedrock of leader development. So if you can't be aware about what you're doing, if you can't reflect on what you're doing um, and notice this, if you're just kind of in the flow of it and refuse to step out of looking at it and, and analyzing it, there's no way you can really proceed as a leader because you'll always just be shooting from the hip. So self-awareness is, is an understanding of, is being able to be aware of what your internal thoughts and sensations and and you know, prejudices and biases are, as well as being able to read the room and see what's going on outside and respond to external uh, to information and to be able to synthesize those too. That's what the self-awareness we're looking for. Are there any examples that you guys noticed in particular in the movie 
or and or that you've seen in in leaders in real life um around self-awareness i feel like one of the first times we see jules interact with ben they have a quick conversation it's like supposed to be five minutes but it ends up being two i think and as he's about to leave she stops him and she's like you'll get used to me and i think that's partly her realizing like i'm rushing him through i'm barely listening i should pause and like give a little bit of like give a little bit of transparency or vulnerability um, and that to me feels like self-awareness, but maybe not self-management. So she's like aware that this could come off a certain way and she doesn't want it to, but she's not necessarily managing her own style in order for it to not come off a certain way, which I thought was interesting. I love that point. That's that that is like the beginning of self-awareness when you can notice and then it takes a little bit more level of mastery where you can notice and make it not that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she also does the same uh with her husband or or talking about her husband she's like you know when she finds out that he's been cheating on her she doesn't actually want to break up with him because she's like let's be honest i'm really difficult and Mm -hmm. am i going to find someone out there who will put up with me which is a little bit heartbreaking Mm -hmm. but it's a nancy myers film so of course (laughs) it's they're so hard on her the whole movie like everyone keeps saying how difficult she is and i really didn't feel like she was that difficult i didn't feel like she was that difficult either i mean she you know i mean compared we see a lot of difficult people in this yeah well she's learned a lot from working of course with uh with Miranda, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatchamacallit, right? And Devil Wears Prada. So I think she's keeping in that. No, no. Um. You know, when there's one thing that I found unrealistic about the movie, just, uh, you know, going back to the age thing, was that the younger guys were asking the older guys advice on stuff. And I nobody ever really asked me advice. Nobody says to me, as a middle-aged person, Kim, what do you think about this? That's not true. I've been asking you things as a Gen Xer this entire podcast. <laughs> okay, this podcast <laughs> Do you want people to? I feel like older people have feel like they have actually, you know, gone through some battles and learned some stuff and that they are often dying to tell you what it is. And mm-hmm. I think that um, young people experience that. And I know I did when I was younger as uh, I know better than you. But it's more like we're just like, please take my gifts, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Or the, the or I relate to that experience, and here's how it played out for me. And it's not even and it's so. I guess what I'm saying is it's not really about. I I, I often find myself trying to help and give some advice, but I know that I can't because everybody got to go through their own stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And so a lot of times when I say it, I'm not really saying it like I know what you should do and I know better than you. I'm saying it more like I relate to that experience because mm-hmm. I have been there too. I think Ben does a really good job of of holding back. Yeah. I think it would be really easy for him to tell all those whippersnappers a thing or two about like how to treat a lady. Yeah. Um, This is not the language. Robert Junior. No, he doesn't use this, which is another the great thing about him. Yeah. Yeah, but there is uh, again self awareness, right? There is a lot of restraint, Um, and I think you can tell. Like, there's definitely facial expressions and size which indicate that like there are things that he wants to say and that he wants to share but that he realizes people won't necessarily be receptive to yeah and so but but then when people do come to him and do ask questions they are more likely to take it to heart it's true and actually make a change so yeah i think that that both of the characters show a really high level of yeah self-awareness um and to some extent self-management yeah, in this agreed. particular film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then one of the other things, which was 
small but really, really critical to the overall success of this organization is this idea of organizational citizenship. So there's a big uh, running theme trend throughout this film in which there is a a desk and everybody just, it's the messy desk, everybody just drops stuff on it and it drives the founder crazy and then one day she walks in and Ben has cleaned up the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, so so talk a little bit about what what this means and like how this plays out in the real life. Well, an organizational citizenship behavior is anything that you that you do that helps the community that you don't have to do. So usually talk about them on a team level so that if everybody's doing extra things, then you've probably got a really super high performing team. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is a time when he, he's doing the desk thing when he's kind of underutilized. Yeah. He hasn't been given much to do. And instead of being demoralized about it and just, you know, going to play video games on his computer waiting for an email, he looks around for stuff, ways to help. And that's um, what that's one a way to gain power and influence in a situation. Mm-hmm. Do do boomers play video games? Is I don't it? know. Okay, solitaire. How about that? Yes, <laughs> yes, that is that is absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he not only does he clean up that pile of stuff, but he also like notices that the driver is sipping some alcohol and like walks out and talks to him. And he, I think, at one point, like proactively is checking in with Jules's assistant to see what he can help with that kind of thing. But he seems to be. It's like that. It's like a little bit of going above and beyond. No one's asking him to. No one's rewarding him monetarily or otherwise to do it. Um, and it, I just thought it was an interesting habit that only he seemed to have in the office. Also. Yeah. What is everybody else up to? I mean, maybe they just have a ton of. I mean, I'm thinking if they're in a scaling startup, they have more work than they can, work they can really handle anyway. So they're busy doing mm-hmm, all of that. Sure. And so that might be a reason to have some interns around. And especially that might be the maybe that's the reason we have senior interns is because they can look around and see things that need doing maybe more than 22 year olds. Yeah. Well, I think that's sometimes the best application of interns is like often they're misused and used for, you know, get us coffees, mm-hmm. shred some paper, do some filing, whatever. Um, but I think it's fun to like have them with fresh eyes approach a tough problem than the situation that wasn't necessarily a tough problem, but with fresh eyes approach a really tough problem and say like, what would you do about this? And give them that, that yeah. leeway. Because to your point, usually people are overworked and overly focused on just like the thousands of emails that are coming in every day to the, yep. all the work. I also just wonder if this is maybe a culture which is focused on performance and metrics right? And and meeting your goals. And so if there's no specific reward or metric around those organizational citizenship behaviors, right? Like nobody is, because by definition, you don't get, you know, extra points. Mm-hmm. You don't get a cookie for doing an organizational behavior. Um, but I feel like it, it, yeah, they're really focused on getting to that next level. We know they're overwhelmed. We know they're swamped. And so I just don't think the the bandwidth is there to build a good culture. Yeah. And I think that's why everybody really appreciates Ben because he is thinking about those things and he does make everybody's life a little bit better. Yeah. And that's a great thing is he, he has the, about the senior interns perhaps is that he has the smarts to see what's going on and the experience. Mm-hmm. And um, he's willing to do it because a lot of times when people are doing like the, the work that, doesn't get you a reward then it's kind of a career derail so since he's not really into this for a career then if he's the one who's doing like all the keeping things together then 
that works out really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have been brought in as consultants to About the Fit. What what advice would we give them? Where where do they need the most help, mm. either for the founder or the company overall? I would love to work with this team. I feel like they'd be so much fun. They generally we didn't really talk about this, but the other thing I really liked about that office is everyone seems pretty nice to each other. Yes, like, they are not cutthroat. Yeah, not saccharine. Like it didn't seem fake to me. Everyone seemed pretty not real. passive aggressive. Yeah, too. not passive aggressive, but just generally nice, nice to each other. Um, but my advice would be. The big question in the movie was, should she hire a CEO or not? And I think to like expand on that a little bit, I don't know if necessarily a CEO is the right choice and she ultimately decided to stay on. But I do think like it's probably time for a leadership team because it's just her and her number two. And I think that's partly why it's hard to delegate, right? Because there isn't someone potentially overseeing the customer service team or the warehouse team, et cetera. That would be a way to to start to delegate some of that responsibility to help with scaling, but also to stay connected with those various parts of the company too and not totally step out. I agree that this is a time when you want to start having some formal structures. You'd also be thinking about succession for all of these things because there's going to be a lot of of moving around um, and you're probably going to be trying to stay responsive to your uh, to your niche, to your cus- and to your customers. Mm. So there's going to be a lot of continued change and there's going to be a lot of, you know, everybody needs a lot of bandwidth here so things that you can do this this might be also a time for um i I think it's 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 going to be a lot about role clarity also so thinking about what it is that people are doing and Mm -hmm. why they're doing this as opposed to this other thing knowing who's doing what so that you don't have a lot of redundancy from all these super capable people running around trying to make everything happen so i agree for me, one of the things I would like to see is a little bit more process put mm-hmm. into place, a little more process documentation, mm-hmm. especially around this idea of fire drills. This seems to me a real heavy fire drill culture. Oh, yeah. Jules is always getting calls about like, mm-hmm. there was a bed bug in the factory and now we have to shut the whole thing down or like the the wrong colored dresses went out and now we have to ship it tomorrow. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of like last minute things and I think this is causing a culture of reactivity and always running from one thing to the next. You never, if you're always being reactive, you never have the time to really think ahead and, and plan out and think strategically, which is what you as a leader should be doing. Hopefully Absolutely. You're, you're looking down the line and saying, what are the changes we need to implement now so we're prepared six 18 months down the line and it's really starting with the ceo because she is running around putting her hands in everything and so she's modeling that behavior for everybody so everybody's probably doing that it's amazing that they have the are able to still be nice to each other under those circumstances yeah yeah so what we like to do in this circumstance is you can call it a fire drill protocol that's that's how we like to refer to it but it's really just one figuring out what is a fire drill a lot of times people just leap into action assuming like oh my god this is so urgent we have to do it right now and it's not like it it's really okay if it doesn't get an immediate reaction so first of all is figuring out what what really is a fire drill what is mission critical that has to be addressed and then the next thing is actually coming out with a procedure and we recommend using uh, a checklist and actually designating one person to read through the checklist at a time. But it's it's really saying like step one, um, call the right people together in the room. Mm-hmm. Step two, like clarify what the problem is and what potential solutions are, etc. And really breaking it down so that every time that they're is a problem and there will there will always be problems there will always be 
new and exciting ways that things can go terribly wrong. Um, but if you if you have a process for dealing with that and it's clear that this group of people over here is dealing with it and they can do their job and everybody else should continue with business as usual, that really brings down the level of stress and panic and confusion that it takes place within a company. So that would be my Absolutely. recommendation. Yeah. yeah. So these guys are kind of in, I'm looking at our cultural maturity model here, and I'm saying that they're probably in the early stage of scaling um, as they're scaling. And so that's the time that, you know, as you're locking in product market fit, that you can start thinking about the medium term rather than just short-term reactivity. Mm -hmm. And so it's everything that both of you guys have been talking about in terms of developing more forecasting and planning processes um, and establishing cultural habits, getting some executive coaching perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also the part about aligning team objectives and ritualizing the alignment process because in the chaos of the startup, everybody may have many different missions and ideas about what it is we're doing here and this is the time you have to start bringing people into that. All right. Well, it sounds like we have our work cut out for us <laughs> at About the Fit. Uh, but unfortunately, that is all we have the time for today. So I want to thank you for listening to Work of Fiction. Uh, as always, please leave a review, uh, smash that like button, hit the five stars or four stars. We're flexible. It's, up, it's totally up to you. Um, but we do love hearing from you. And this is how we get the word out to other people. Uh, and you can always visit us at workoffiction.fm. So until next time. Yeah.